They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa. Um, one of many podcasts on the internet where you can hear me talk to people. Um, the most popular of which is the Chipman Brothers Tangent, where I talk with my brother, Movie Bob. The other is the Talkbuster podcast, where I interview people I used to work with at Blockbuster or people that have worked in video stores or other things within that um, industry. And uh, the Creating Geeks podcast, which I do with my wife, which is about sharing things from our childhood with our kids that we now have. And this one, um, where I get to have... Um, anybody that's interested in talking to me on and with that um my guest tonight is alex peregrine and i'll let alex give a quick introduction to himself alex talk to the world my friend i'm alex i'm a would-be screenwriter but of course that's a difficult industry to get into oh yeah and, and otherwise i'm just I don't know, living not the most exciting life, but who knows? Maybe we'll find something interesting. Oh, dude, you we we've we've talked a bit before this, and I think you're really interesting. So you're you're living in Wisconsin, you said? Well, I went to college in Wisconsin, but right now I'm living in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Ah, uh, yes, um, John Hughes territory, as you put it. Yes. Nice. So, um, you, you had mentioned um in in what you wrote here, you know that you and locals who are from that area, you know, know all the places where things like Ferris Bueller's day off and risky business and home alone and things were filmed. And you had equated that to, you know, being similar to me in Boston here. Um, and probably what me and my friends would say, Oh, you know, the departed and where they filmed that and, you know, goodwill hunting and things of that nature. Um, but you know, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, people are annoyed by in those movies or like maybe things they got wrong or like an area they said was something that was really something else. Do you have any any stories or anything like that? Well, the first thing is that Shermer is a fictional city and a lot of tourists don't seem to realize that. Oh, man. Just that. Many tourists want to go see the school that... The breakfast club was filmed in but the thing is that they built a separate interior for that so i guess a lot of people go to the exterior building for that and ask for a tour and it you it's not nearly as common now because the movies kind of faded into right obscurity but but just that for a while they were just turning people away just saying no the interior does not look anything like the movie <laughs> isn't that always the case um you know around here uh, I, my city lynn um abuts to salem massachusetts so all of the movies that have been filmed in or about salem particularly like hocus pocus and things like that one of the jokes for locals which us being adjacent to salem we count as locals to there Everyone's always like, well, tell me where the Sanderson sisters house is. No, we can't because it was a set. Oh, tell me where this place was. Yeah, we can't. That was that was a Hollywood back lot. We're sorry. Like, not very much of that was filmed here. <laughs> we, we don't really know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what was I going to say? 
um, what else you got here? So you you talked about you know I I've on my show before on the Chipman Brothers Tangent talked with my brother about um, growing up in Catholic school, and you had mentioned that you're in a Reformed Jewish household. And um, so tell tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so for those that don't know the denominations of Judaism, Reform Judaism is, relatively speaking, it's a fairly recent thing. And the principle behind it is that religion is an evolving thing, and also that basically your needs should take priority over whatever or the synagogue is. So they don't have requirements of attendance or donations or anything. At least that's the one that I used to belong to. I don't belong to there anymore. I got out pretty much immediately after my bar mitzvah. But so but anyway, it's just very laid back. They they don't really expect you to even really believe what they're telling you. It, that sounds kind of a bit weird for religion, but they're open to questioning and discussions and such. I, I noticed that, um, you know, you had also said that your your mother comes from a Protestant family, so that's an interesting mix. And I had, growing up Catholic, my father grew up Protestant. And so anytime we got to go to their church or mingle with those folk, um, I had that same reaction to the Protestant faith in comparison to what we were learning in Catholicism and the way church was held in Catholicism. The Protestant churches felt like you were coming in and, you know, hanging out with a bunch of people that were just being like open and friendly with each other. And there wasn't like this air of, you know, rules and regulations and commitment to it. And I, I really liked that more laid back approach. And I don't know if you had that same reaction with the Protestant faith being that your reformed Jewish background was so laid back, but did you notice that too? Or was the Protestant kind of more um, strict than the reformed Jewish? To be honest, outside of visiting relatives every Christmas for the first 17 years of my life, and <laughs> we would never actually go to church with them or anything. It would just mm -hmm. be that we would go to to Traverse City, Michigan and for the Christmas holiday. And we would just basically go to the houses of the people that are living there and have parties and gift giving and such. And it was one of two trips that we would make up to Traverse City, the other being for the 4th of July. And I don't think I've ever attended a Protestant church service. In fact, I think I've only attended one Christian-related service, and that was because a relative of mine died recently, and she had a Catholic funeral. I attended that. Yeah, that's, a, that's quite a thing, a Catholic funeral. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm really sorry that uh, you lost your family member there. I um, that seems to be the more the the more you grow up, the more that happens. Unfortunately, right? You said you uh you lost your father as well. Yeah, three years ago. Yeah, me too. Ex exactly the same year. Um, and uh, I you know I'm I feel bad. 
um, that you had to go through that too. Your father was a lot older than mine. Um, yeah. mine, mine was in his early sixties. Um, and you had said that it was a foregone conclusion. So I hope, uh, I hope that was at least, a, you know, everybody kind of knew it was coming and you were content with it and not something more dire than that, like bad circumstances. Cause my dad had done a lot of damage to himself. Um, he made a lot of bad decisions and, um, they kind of caught up with him. And so it was, it was hard to lose him. But at the same time for us, it was a foregone conclusion because of what he had done. But I really wish he could be around for my kids, you know? Yeah. Um, my dad, he, so, I mean, he also kind of wrecked his body by just getting really overweight and such. He worked as a lawyer and the thing was that he did a lot of long hours and he didn't exercise or anything. Right. Not, and, and so thing was that he was actually in the military as, as a defense lawyer for or two stints and, and went through basic for the first one. Oh, wow. So he, Basically, just kind of decided after, as he described it, he never felt better in his life than after he finished basic training. Guess he, his priorities did not lie in staying that way. Yeah, that happens. Oh, well, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that losing your dad, but, um, I'm hoping you have fond memories of him because that's, it's funny, you know, with the. The losing of someone, all, all the all the bad stuff that I could remember, kind of all dropped away, and I just remember the good stuff, which makes me happy. Yeah. Um. So you had also said, and th- this is something that is near and dear to me, and I I appreciate you being open about this. Um, because up until having my daughter, um, I really didn't have much experience with um, au- autism or anybody. Uh involved in you know services that helped autistic people or therapies involved with that and you know you you were very open in what you sent me about um you know your bat with you know being on the autism spectrum and could you could you share a little bit of that if you're comfortable with me because i uh that's really inspiring to me to be talking to you today at you know 35 36 years old and just having you know my four-year-old daughter and thinking about you know what life she has ahead of her and you know it it just makes me really happy to be talking to someone you know that's that's doing well and you know is a super geek like me (laughs) you know it makes me feel like my daughter could be like me too and that makes me happy so well give me a little bit of insight if you would okay so first off the best way to understand autism is to i mean if if the invention from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind existed, use that on the movie Rain Man. So, yeah. Wow, that's a, re- that's a really interesting way to put it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, for people that haven't seen it, erase mm. it from your memory. Yeah, so, no, of course. So, after you've done that, it basically, the autism spectrum is... It's a spectrum. There's different levels of functioning and and the traits are not really consistent. I mean, it's been kind of a really widely discussed topic within the American Psychological Association. There's been 
basically every version of the manual for diagnostics that they've released, they adjust the definition more. And recently, they used to have a term called Asperger's syndrome. Mm -hmm. They got rid of that. Now it's just the autism spectrum. They also got rid of a pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified. So, or at least I'm pretty sure they have. Yeah, I'm pretty Any, sure they have. Anyway, they, usually they're, the way that it manifests is language issues, such as I was not able to have even a vague conversation until I was age five. Wow. Where there is video of me talking because my dad had a camcorder and filmed a lot of stuff. And so the the video of me talking that I've seen, it's basically just someone says a word to me a few times and I eventually say the word back. Right. And then the parent goes, yeah, look, he can talk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I remember that 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 was kind of our thing. Well, she says words and the doctor has said the same thing to us. No, she's repeating what you said. You know, there, there's a definite developmental issue here that we need to have a specialist look at. And, um, you know, luckily we, we live in a world where they look into and catch that stuff a lot sooner. Now, how, how old were you when you were, when you were diagnosed? Um, uh, two years old. Oh, wow. So that that's incredibly progressive for the, the time you and I grew up Thanks. in, because I hear of a lot of kids that, you know, didn't really that are our age that didn't really get diagnosed. till they were in their teens. Yeah. Well, I mean, my family is fairly well off and they took a lot of interest in me and and just when it became clear that I wasn't learning language at a regular rate, they basically sought out answers from psychologists and such. Whereas I think a lot of the people that are diagnosed later in life, their parents aren't necessarily not caring about them. They just don't know correct, who to correct. ask. I think so. that's the biggest thing is pe- people don't know how to or they don't know how to or who to communicate with. To, to get the answers they're looking for, or to even figure out what question they should be asking. Yeah. And, but anyway, they, with the help of a speech therapist that I saw from, I think, ages five to eight or so, I was able to talk well enough to at least go to school. I still went through special education, but... The way special education worked, at least when I went to school between 89 and 2001, is it's basically just a class period. And early on, it was just that I was in basically just, if you go by a nine period class schedule I was in, and just six of those one for lunch period, and then two, I was just transplanted into another class, mainly because of just socializing with other kids. Which is very important. Yeah. But by the time I got to high school, it was just one period. And otherwise, I was just taking classes with everybody else. And I still had 
throughout high school because of just changes to how the education worked. I actually had a dedicated note taker for me because of a combination of I kind of tripped at focus a lot. And also, I am really terrible at handwriting. You and me both, sir. <laughs> yeah, as in, I took a test once for just note-taking, where they just gave a lecture on vampire mythology, and I was supposed to take notes on it. And I did not get even 10% of the information down. Oh, bummer. Uh, I mean, I think the understanding the thing that amazes me the most about special education and you know from from the age you were getting at it sounds like you were getting a, a really good you know version of it because you know depending on who you talk to like you said either the programs just don't have funding or they don't quite know how to they haven't hadn't quite figured out how to you know get somebody on the spectrum to figure out how they learn correctly you know what i mean and i I love seeing what my daughter goes through now because I'm in a city that's a, a fairly not so great, you know, kind of urban area city. And it's looked down on in the state I'm in, but it's the city I grew up in. I moved back to it. I live in my grandma's house and I found out that outside of, you know, the school system not being the greatest, this city has one of the best special education departments in the state. And I didn't know that because they just have so many students that need the help. So my daughter ended up getting into, you know, a special education program that got her into pre-K really early. And um, so she's in an integrated class and gets, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a speech therapist and a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. And then throughout the rest of the day is in an intermix of kids that are, you know, um, you wouldn't know which ones like they don't tell you. But, you know, some of the kids are on the spectrum with a diagnosis and some of them are not. And she fits right in and it, it amazes me that just the, the short period of time, just having that therapy, having that attention, like how great of a job they do. And they just, you know, when they look at somebody and say, you just learn different, not you can't learn. So I think them giving you a note taker, just recognizing that that's something you had a hard time with, but it's not that you couldn't learn the material. I think that's an awesome better way of looking at human beings than I think history uh, would would make us believe, right? Yeah. It helps that I I grew up in a very progressive area. Yeah, that's great to hear. <laughs> it's great to hear. Um, so you had said uh, your speech therapist was actually the mother of D.B. Weiss. Yes. Which I think or is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, Lori Weiss was, I don't know if she's still practicing, but she was a speech therapist. By the way, this is this is not me divulging any information that isn't already known. Right, I just, I, th I think it's just, you know, of, of all the random, like, yeah, my speech therapist is this person. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is that as far as just connections to Hollywood goes, it means nothing. Of course, of course. It's just a random factoid. Um, so what did you did you see as you went through school? You you had mentioned that, you know, the the obviously the the special education programs changed. 
um, because they were progressing. And then, you know, uh, one school does things different than another. Did you feel like there was like one like elementary school or high school or college or whatever where you had the best experience with it? Or did you feel like they were all just kind of good in their own way? Yeah. I'm not going to say which school just because. Yeah, of course. In my hometown. But I would say probably grade six through eight was the best experience. Awesome. That's that's good to know because that that's a really key time, right? Yeah. You you you, you don't you, you, that's the time when when um you know the, even the most uh, I'd say um I I hate to use the word normal. That's a bad word. Um, neurotypical is another word that they. But like you know a kid that you know you might look at from the outside perspective if they're doing fines. Grade six to eight is you know, the hardest time. I I remember thinking back on that and that's when all of my self doubt and all of my depression and everything else came in. Yeah, that's, that was kind of my experience. Well, that in freshman in high school, but one of the benefits of high school that I had is, so, I mean, like a lot of children, I was bullied in my youth, but that actually stopped in high school. And I'm not entirely sure why, but I think at that point, kids kind of don't have to interact with each other the way that they do in previous grades. That's true. Yeah. Throughout high school, I wasn't really part of any social group. I had I had one friend that I did stuff with with just oh, outside of school. And I was familiar with a couple other kids. That's awesome. I, I, I love that you, uh, when you mentioned the college, um, University of Wisconsin, Whitewater, this line you wrote when you, you wrote to be here was, it made me smile. Or you said, you know, um, it's probably the worst of the universities of Wisconsin, but it's still the college that accepted me. So that makes it the best school of all time. And I, and I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's not really that much interesting about Whitewater. Whitewater is, it's a small town. It has some farmers. It's very much, let's refer to as a gown in town. Where there, I mean, you have the people that live there that have a very, I guess, simple lifestyle. I don't know what term you would really use. And... And about two-thirds of the population would be students and faculty. And then come Friday afternoon, about half the population just leaves town because there's really nothing there. There There's one bar of any real note, and there's one decent restaurant. And so people would usually leave and go to Milwaukee or Madison. Right. That's and you said you had a hundred mile commute back home. A hundred minutes, sorry, commute back home. Yeah. And you just went ahead and did that anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it depended, but I would do that at I don't know, every two to four weekends or so. But otherwise, because I'm kind of a very solitary person, I'm fine just playing video games with my by myself or watching movies. Oh, I get I you. Would, and- and I appreciate I appreciate even more that you reached out to to do this with me because I, I understand that you know some solitary people are solitary and um, you know I, 
I'm happy to give you this, uh, this format to, you know, get yourself out there a little bit. It makes me feel good. Yeah. So you, you were saying, I feel like I interrupted you there. I apologize. Um, there's not really that much interesting. I mean, <laughs> I, I did spend way too long in college just due to anxiety and depression issues, but I did graduate. That's, that's all that matters, right? It, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't matter how long you take. It matters that you did it. Cause that's, that's a, that's an accomplishment. No one can take away from you. And that's a very solitary accomplishment. You know, all, all this, all this group effort, all of this camaraderie and everything, you know, it, it all falls out the window when you go, okay, what did you do? Well, I, I made it through college, man. This is me. I think that's awesome. I, uh, I spent a long portion of my life, you know, convincing people that, you know, have like a, you know, an idea they might want to do something like that just for a personal accomplishment. You know, I've had interns come and work with me that, you know, are in high school and are not trying to decide whether or not they should go to college or go into a trade. And it's like, well, you're, you're here doing an internship in engineering, go try out engineering. If you like, you know, see if you like it, you know, you don't have to stick with it, but now's the best time in your life to try, right? <laughs> the, the more complicated stuff gets, the, the harder it's going to be. That's the way I yeah. look at it. So mo- moving out of, um, you know, the, the, the super personal stuff, which I really appreciate you, you sharing with me. Um, but you know, interests, um, are, are, uh, you know, a place where we can, you know, smile to get the conversation away from, from the heavier stuff. Um, and you had said at the beginning of this year, you're aspire to be a screenwriter and you write speculative fiction. And, um, you had noted that, uh, you know, you could pitch some of your concepts and I'd, I'd love to hear that. So if you're, if you're comfortable talking about any of them, I'd love to hear them. Okay. So. Well, like a lot of writers, I'll often write something and then after I'm done with it, where I've just gone through the whole cycle of just basically living it out in my mind a lot, figuring out things to change about it. And once I kind of put it on paper and I'm done with it, a week later, I'll just kind of think, what the fuck did I just write? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah. But, but anyway... So one of the concepts, I often have long rambling stories about how I come about my concepts. And so one thing that I thought of for a recent thing that I wrote that is basically unusable just because it'll become clear why it's unusable pretty quickly. So I was thinking about just as the H.G. Wells book, the Island of Dr. Moreau. Ooh, and all right. I looked I looked up adaptations of it because I figured, hey, hey, the concept of animal people, that feels like something that some anime studio would make, wouldn't it? Oh, yes. It, it, anime is very much into uh, the, the animal people. Turns out there's not a single Japanese film that even is vaguely based on it but then i got it's a gold mine yeah but then i got to thinking in terms of of just how of course back in 1896 it's was just kind of treated as a horror thing 
And some shipwrecked guy ends up on an island where a mad scientist is turning animals into human-animal hybrids and trying to basically force civilization on them and things go wrong and such. But in what I thought of is just because in the book and most adaptations, it's some secret thing that he's doing because he got cast off from civilized society for wanting to do these experiments. And I got to thinking, okay, considering the furry and other kin communities, right. wouldn't people be signing up for those clinical trials? <laughs> I mean, this is the opposite direction where in the book and movies, it's he's turning animals into these. But in my concept, I just thought, okay, well, first, I'm doing a bad job of pitching because this is already going way longer than an elevator ride. Oh, dude, it's okay. Remember, I, I can edit this if I have to, but this is fascinating to me, so keep going. Uh, okay. <laughs> Imagine this. Some model that specializes in fantasy cosplay, especially ones of fantastical creatures like angels and minotaurs and such, discovers this exists and and she just figures i want this technology to make just the ultimate cosplay and essentially with the help of her friends and and this industrialist that also wants this technology organizes a heist of the island of dr moreau oh i love it and you, you wrote this? Yeah, I wrote a 90-page script for him. Oh, this. dude, that's awesome. You, you got a whole 90 pages out of it, huh? Oh, man. Yeah. See, that's, that's, that's uh, to me, I, I don't know if you follow, um, there's a, a movie critic. Um, he, he went by Massaworm when he was uh, on Ain't It Cool News, but his name's C. Robert Cargill, and he he's written... Um, a bunch of movies. He actually wrote Doctor Strange. Um, and Scott Derrickson, who directed Doctor Strange, is his writing partner. And they, they write and work a lot together. And he he writes inspirational tweets to writers. So if you don't follow him, follow him. It's always like, you know, he says things like, you know, who cares if you throw the script out? You wrote it, right? You know what I mean? Like, if if you, you know, there's 120 days left in the year. If you write a page a day, that's script. You know what I mean? It's just really cool. And I'm not a writer, but I, I'm a concept guy. And I find his tweets super inspirational. And I think if you, you followed him, that would be a that would be a cool, like probably brain helper, brain food kind of guy. Because that's all he does is just tries to inspire, you know, um, would-be writers like like you claim yourself to be. So that's a really great pitch idea. I like that. Yeah, what makes it unusable is just that. Okay, so I hadn't watched the 1996 Island of Dr. Moreau, but <laughs> I... That's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least it created a great documentary. <laughs> oh, that documentary is so good. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, one of the plot points in my thing is basically shocking implants. Because uh -huh. of, and... That's also in this movie. 
along with how, because I just understood, first, the island of Dr. Moreau is public domain. So I wrote this as just a 120 years later sequel to that. Right. In, in and, a universe where that happened, <laughs> we can do this. Yes. That's really cool. So, uh, so, so what else? What else do you have? Okay. I um, love this. This I, I love hearing what other people's brains and um, idle hands can come up with because, uh, you know, you you think you thought of everything, but I've never heard that. That that's a great pitch. Yeah, another one that I wrote where. Well, I mean, I wrote this many years ago, and thinking about it, there are already changes that I would make, such as the setting. But imagine this. Someone discovers the secret to unlocking witchcraft, and the person that discovers it basically is just involved with just essentially... I made an off-brand version of Fox News that they're attached to, and what they wanted to do was, was create an actual witch hunt using this. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah. Where they're there. As Fox News is trying to do, this was, I wrote this during the Obama era, but. Oh, of they, course. Of course, because because nowadays it just makes too much sense. It needed to be a little bit satirical. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest failure of satire in that is is uh, the main character is this conspiracy theorist that's really obsessed with justice, or at least her version of justice, which is violence mostly. And she wants to be a police officer and has gone through the academy or tried to get into the academy a few times and got rejected each time for being too violent. Oh, awesome. I realized that just fails utterly. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Just the idea that any human being is too violent to be accepted. Yeah. The, the world's kind of proven you wrong there, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> now, 10 just, years ago, on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. So... Back before everybody had cell phone cameras, where one thing I saw someone say is, ever notice how after cell phone cameras came about, UFO sightings went way down and police beatings went way up? Yeah. Whoops. Yep. It's like that third eye we hold in our hands just kind of opened up our view of the real world. That's a really good point. Did, did, did you know, um, did you hear recently, speaking of UFOs, that, um, uh, what was his name? Um, uh, the singer of Blink-182. Yes, yeah, the, ex, the ex-singer of Blink-182. Uh, is Tom DeLonge? No, I think he's the main one. I can't remember the other guy's name, but he, who was super obsessed with UFOs, actually uncovered a legitimate thing that the government was like, yeah, we haven't identified what that is, so you might not want to share that. <laughs> Like, yeah. legitimately found a UFO. Good job, guy. <laughs> Although, I looked at these stories. It's mostly that they found materials that right. are not identifiable. Right. They haven't they haven't exactly found... Aliens. <laughs> or even... But, 
And also, it could just be one of those really boring explanations, such as it could have just come from a meteor. I mean, meteors hit Earth all the time. They do a lot, a lot more than I was led to believe when I was a child. Just like, just like my mother told me that there were no sharks in the Atlantic Ocean after I saw Jaws, specifically Great Whites. And uh, then I, in the last like 10 or so years down Cape Cod, there's been people getting attacked by them and tons of sightings of great white sharks. And I went down there and took a picture of a sign that said, warning, there are great white sharks in these waters. Be careful. And I sent it to my mom and said, you lied. When, when I was a kid and you comforted me after I saw Jaws, you're a liar. She thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Or at least a liar by degrees anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, she, she just thought it was really funny. I wasn't actually mad. Um, Cause they actually filmed that on Martha's vineyard. Um, so I went over and did a tour, like a bus tour of Mother's Vineyard, and they talk about all the locations they filmed Jaws at, which is pretty cool. It's my it's my favorite movie. That makes me happy. Yeah. Um, so cool. Let, let's let's go with one more pitch. I, I I love I love what you have. Your your brain is awesome. I love these movie ideas. Okay. Um, I have to think for a second because those. Well, I mean, one of them just being recent and oh, if, if if you've only got two, that's cool too. I just I didn't want to stop you if um if you uh had more you wanted to talk about in that respect. That's all. Okay, I I don't really have okay other pitches ready at the moment. No, that's fine, dude. Um, so you had uh you know talked about video games. I love video games. Um, and you obviously do as well. Um. You talked about starting with an NES in 1989. Um, I don't know if you've heard the episodes of these shows where I've talked about my uh, bout with the NES, but um, my brother got one, I think, in 86. So I was two years old and he was five. Yeah. And I really, really wanted one, but we'd like sit around as a family and like, you know, play the games together, which are some of the best memories of my life. My, my father and mother you know, attempting to connect with, with my brother, um, and like, you know, going through the strategy guides and helping him make it through wizards and warriors and Castlevania two Simon's quest and the legend of Zelda and final fantasy, all the original NES releases. And, um, when I was four years old, so in 1988, my mom got a phone call from star market and I guess she had entered my name in a drawing to win an NES. And I won and I, I got on the phone with the, you know, like probably pimple faced, like 17 year old, um, shift leader at star market. And he was like, dude, you won an NES. You got to come down to pick it up. And my mom brought me down there and like, they took a photo of me with it. And I was just four, you know, and it was the coolest thing ever. So in my brother and I's room upstairs, they moved his NES and mine was hooked up to the TV downstairs. So I felt like, you know, the, the big man on campus, you know, or this is my Nintendo, you know, <laughs> it just made me feel really good. So what, um, you know, you made a list of games here and, uh, you know, I want to talk about a lot of them because damn, we share very similar interests, but can you think back on NES? Like what one of your favorite games from that system was? Well, I really liked the original Final Fantasy. It's such a it good was, game. Yeah. Even though. It was a game that I really struggled with. Just oh, because. it's hard. Yeah. Much of what makes it hard is that it's not really clear 
on a lot of stuff. So, Not at all. <laughs> um, basically, as a kid, I eventually just learned that, that in order to have an easier time of things, you would just find some place to just kill a lot of things constantly, such as there's one section called Giant Alley, which is it's this random hallway. It's just a circular loop that doesn't lead anywhere in one of the dungeons. But the thing is that they turn the encounter rate up to close to 100%. And it's of this giant or group of giants, <laughs> depending on randomness. And I eventually learned, hey, so if I just walk through here, I got to a point where I could kill them. Not really easily, but I could at least get through a, a rotation. And... I just would spend hours doing that or one random area of the overworld I found uh, near, I think, the tower where you upgrade your characters. Yep. I spent a lot of time there. I remember, uh, you know, me and my brother being completely confounded by that game. And one day I made it to the what I thought was the end because the opening of that game, if you do it wrong, can take forever. And I got the title crawl, you know, where Final Fantasy comes up for the first time. And it's really just when you open the world map and like, and I was like, Bob, I beat it. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so proud of myself. Um, I remember back in that day with like things like Nintendo Power, you know, pre-internet, right? people would share photos with Nintendo power of the, the last screen of a game to prove that they beat the game. And Nintendo like kept a log in Nintendo power of like everybody who's beaten the legend of Zelda and everyone who's beaten final fantasy. And I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. I did subscribe to Nintendo power. So oh, we did. <laughs> oh boy. Well, did we, my brother I... actually hanging on his wall has the first and last issue, um, which both had the same, front cover just one was done in claymation with super mario 2 and the other was done with um i think it was either it was super mario galaxy 2 they did a cover of and i thought that was really cool yeah i mean i can even say what issue i started with which was issue 29 and the cover is is of mickey mouse and a firefighter their outfit. Yes, it and, is. And the thing is that it was, it was a special edition or something of it where, where one of the things they had in there, I'm pretty sure that this was in there, was, was I may be confusing this with a later issue or something, but one of the things they had was they were promoting Star Fox and they had basically this you can make a paper R-wing. Yes, I remember that. And I made that, but the, the dog that my family had just got and destroyed it. Oh, and I tried, no. And I tried buying the back issue, but it was just without the special stuff. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. So you mentioned um, on here my, my favorite... Um, GameCube game ever made uh, Metroid Prime yeah. oh Metroid Prime I there still hasn't been a first person game that got platforming down as perfect as that game did yeah it was just wonderful I want more 
I want like 20 Metroid Prime games. I, they're so good. Yeah. There's so there's a video where because there's an event called Games Done Quick. Uh-huh. And for one of them, when they did a Metroid Prime run, they actually got one of the higher ups of Retro Studios to guest on it. And they mentioned just a lot of the technical things, such as how for the doors, they actually have a guiding mechanic, which is not really noticeable horizontal. But if you jump into it, you notice that your character just kind of funnels up in a particular way along with how because in speed running, they often go out of bounds. And the person that they had on the call just explained how loading areas worked because you could actually see it in action when you're out of bounds. Wow. It, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that particular run. I'm going to have to watch that because I've seen, I've seen a lot of that stuff, but I haven't seen the one on Metroid Prime. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. And, and you do mention on here the, the video game that nearly broke uh, my household because um, I bought a PlayStation so I could own and play Final Fantasy VII, and my brother almost disowned me because I it was the first non Nintendo console to come into the household. Yeah, <laughs> of course, my brother about fifteen years later called the PlayStation Two the greatest console of all time. So, <laughs> how times have changed. Yeah, I mean the PlayStation Two kind of represents. Kind of the perfect era for video game budgets. It really did. It because, really did. Because after that, when they went HD, suddenly the budgets have a really competitive game skyrocketed. And, and, the, and there was so much less interesting games coming out. I mean, the PlayStation 2 had both Ico and Shadow of the Colossus, two of yeah. the most unique games I've ever played. Granted, both wouldn't exist without The Legend of Zelda. You know, and I mean, they're kind of aping on a lot of that. But still, it, it's unbelievable, the, the games that came out in that era. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you're the first person to ever tell me that some of their favorite games um, were the Harmonix, Rock Band, and Guitar Hero games. Rock Band is the only reason I own an Xbox 360. Um, I needed it. I had to have it in my life. I I lived and breathed Guitar Hero 1 and 2. Um, and I, I know a lot of the people that worked for Harmonix. My friend Casey um, actually worked for them and was a play tester for Guitar Hero 2 and Rock Band. And was actually one of the lead um, designers for Rock Band 2, Rock Band 3, and Beatles Rock Band. And so... I, I'm so happy to find someone that actually still will admit that they liked those games because everybody else is like, those things were stupid. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was my life. Yeah. I mean, they got oversaturated, and that was Activision's fault. They yes, pushed. it was. Yes, it I was. I think in one year they released seven Guitar Hero-branded titles. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> and, and that was that was an industry that crashed pretty fast. But, and it, it's a bummer because Rock Band is still one of the most playable, like just pick up and play and have a good time games I've ever owned. Yeah. But, and, but anyway, hey, Guitar Hero and Rock Band was kind of what set me on the path to discovering a broader range of music. 
Yeah. Because it was kind of before then. I just had a couple random things that I just kind of discovered either through it just being some massive cultural thing such as Pink Floyd or, or, or just random things that I saw on the internet such as as in, here's another thing that I'll admit to that I don't really feel ashamed about. I feel as though the band Creed gets too much shit for what it is. I, you know what? I completely agree. They're one of those bands that I think the world has just started turning around on because they, their their singer is awesome. He has a very distinct and kind of annoying voice, but he's awesome. They had some great musicians in that band. Yeah, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just talking about Creed the other day with somebody. Keep going, keep going. But anyway, I and also I listen to just a lot of video game soundtracks because I also, uh, until the mid 2000s, I kind of had this self goal of just I would just play every single Japanese RPG that came out, and a lot of them have just amazing soundtracks. <laughs> I think I think nearly all of them have amazing soundtracks. Well, I mean, I played some of the really terrible ones that had bad soundtracks, but all of the ones people remember. I mean, let's be honest. The game Chrono Trigger would be half the game it is without its soundtrack. Yes, I completely agree that that soundtrack, you can turn that on without the game playing and you just go glazed over and just get immersed. It's like, oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> that is uh, such an incredible game. And you're right. The soundtrack is a large portion of why it's so great. Uh, um, here's a, here's a fun ahead. thing that viewers can do. Or yeah. Listeners can do is, okay, take the, the song's called Morning Glow. It's what plays at the beginning of the game in Chrono's bedroom. And it's only... 45 seconds long or so take that and make it an alarm for yourself for the morning oh man oh that would be great i think i'm gonna do that yeah i i often think in terms of making ringtones out of of stuff usually out of just audio clips of just weird shit oh it's, it's fun it's movie fun, quotes and when I when I got a phone, you could do that with for the first time. Have you ever heard of the movie Session Nine? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. So it, it's a horror movie they filmed at a mental hospital in Danvers, so a couple cities away from me. And it's actually the mental hospital that H.P. Lovecraft used as the inspiration for Arkham in the, in his books. Um, but they were closing it and renovating it, um, and they made a movie about a renovation team that is there working and some creepy supernatural stuff happens to them. But there's one bit in the movie where uh, the creepy thing that's in this guy's head that's telling him what to do says, do it, Gordon. And I use that as the sound clip on my phone every time I turned my phone on. And it freaked everybody that knew it out. <laughs> and I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, man, I actually have a recommendation for you. Um. I had these guys on from Horizons End Gaming on an episode of my show. I don't know if you've listened to it yet. Um, they might have. They made There's... a game they made a game called The Great Gaius. Actually it... I did I did not listen to that episode. Okay. The audio clicking was 
Yeah, yeah, him. and I'm I'm sorry about that. Um, because that that I did not hear that while I was recording it, and I couldn't get rid of it after the fact. But um, please look up his game. Um, he's yeah. he had been working on it since high school, and I I ran into them at PAX, fell in love with the game when I played it there, and as a fan of like the Chrono Trigger era of RPGs, you're just gonna fall in love with this damn game. It's it's wonderful. I don't have time to play it, and I still find time to play it because I really like it. Um, yeah. Put a lot of love into it, you know? Um, so you made an interesting statement here. You said for movies, you tend to gravitate towards the trashy type of surreal, colossal failures of ambition. And yeah. um, give me some examples. Okay. So one example i've been fascinated with because often what i find fascinating is just being able to see just by watching it the creative decisions or the uncreative decisions in many cases where you just see okay they obviously changed that for this reason so a movie i've been fascinated with recently is the movie food fight yeah and, i can't i can't wait to watch it <laughs> yeah so well, for those that are unaware of this movie, yeah, I would say, I mean, I personally feel it's worth watching just because it's kind of almost an education in filmmaking in terms of just you suddenly notice all of the stuff that good movies do right by watching it. But anyway, so the premise of it, I mean, if you've seen the movie Sausage Party. Oh, Yes. Okay, Sausage Party is a rip-off of Food Fight. <laughs> a rip-off of Food Fight? Yeah, Sausage Party came out four years after. Oh, man. Uh, Sausage Party is different in that it's actual food items rather than the mascots of food items. <laughs> I but, see. But in Food Fight, it takes place in a supermarket. When the humans go away, hey, it suddenly becomes just a city. <laughs> and... The various icons of different products have adventures in there. And here's the thing. The person that founded the studio and made this movie. So he founded it in 1999. At that point, there were really just two computer animated films at the time, which were Toy Story and A Bug's Life. But he obviously got inspiration from Toy Story. And saw the potential that Toy Story had, which was that they only had in the original movie one branded thing, that being Mr. Potato Head. Yep. And they wanted to have Barbie, but Mattel said no. And they, I'm pretty sure they asked a few other companies that also said no, because, I mean, they're just a new studio. They just had a couple short films, and they were they're showing off new technology that was unproven with a concept that just when you listen to it, does not sound like a big movie premise. Right. But Mr. Potato Head got to be in it. And clearly the creators of Food Fight, they just wondered, okay, so Toy Story does this for toys, but you know what area has a lot of different mascots that children gravitate towards? Food items. In particular, cereal. But they got almost no cereal mascots. But they did get some other mascots, such as, as, and all of these are just cameos, even though the DVD the cover for this shows four of these mascots just front and center, taking up about 50% of the image. 
And the actual main characters are just in the lower left, just way in the background. (laughs) But that's, um, uh, they got Mrs. Buttersworth. (laughs) They got uh, the pickle store guy. I don't know what his name is. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They got Vlasic, Vlasic. Yeah, the pickle store. (laughs) Yeah, they got uh, Twinkie the Kid. They got... Mr. Clean is in this movie. No way. He does not talk at all, even though he has a credited voice actor. Oh, no. Which means that they probably did record lines, but didn't use them. And, but they, they have Charlie Tuna. And, and also, there are a bunch of other background ones. They have the Chiquita Banana Lady. But for some <laughs> reason, for some reason, they... Aged her up about 20 years and added about 50 pounds to her. I don't really get why they did that. But also, they don't name her in the movie. So I think Chiquita probably said no. And they just hastily redesigned the character just enough. (laughs) Yeah, we swear this isn't the Chiquita banana lady. Yeah, but, but anyway, the production of this movie is amazing as well. So the movie came out in 2012, and you probably noticed I said the year 1999. <laughs> so, yep, uh, they they founded the studio at this point. I mean, Toy Story 2 hadn't come out yet. I mean, I think canonically the next animated movie that isn't Pixar is Titan AE, as in much of that is computer animated, but it's mostly 2D. Yes, uh, or Disney's Dinosaurs, their first Disney-branded 3D animated that oh came out in God, 2000. I, f- I forgot about that one. Yeah, but anyway, so they got investors, they gave the pitch, and you just know the pitch meeting is just, we are going to fund this movie through product placement exclusively, but we yep. need seed money for this, and that's where you come in. We'll get all these products in. We'll get Chester Cheetah to be in the movie, and he was going to be in the movie. But they did all of that. For two years, they developed the movie. They animated it or kind of animated it, and, and they released the trailer in 2001. And Chester is in it more than the actual main character. <laughs> it's, and you just know that. And at some point, Frito Lay just said no. Yeah, uh, sorry. Chester, yeah, they probably just saw that trailer along with what happened after the trailer's release. The movie was supposed to come out in 2002 or so. Someone broke into the studio and stole all their hard drives. <laughs> oh my God. God, and you just know. So the head of the studio accused just the general world at large of industrial espionage. But the reality oh. is they just stole the hardware. They probably blanked the hard drives. They probably didn't even look at what was on the hard drives and just blanked them and just sold them on, on the gray market. Yep. But anyway, so they had to just start over with whatever they still had. So they had a planned release date, and here's where the actual... I don't have the Wikipedia article up, but... So they were supposed to release it in, I think, 2005. They missed that. They were supposed to release it in 2007, missed it. 2010, missed it. 
And and so movies have insurance, and part of the insurance is what's referred to as a completion bond, which is yep. where they're basically you can get the entire movie insured if something goes wrong. But part of it is that if you take that insurance or if that company feels that you're not actually doing what you're supposed to, they can just take the movie from you. And so their insurance company took the movie. They allegedly got it finished. And I say allegedly because there are so many obvious gaps. (laughs) And they released it. And the thing was that because they're an insurance company and not a movie studio, they did not actually get a deal with any of the major distributors. So they put it in just a handful of theaters. It made, at most, I think it made about $300,000 worldwide. They released it in the United Kingdom and the United States, and then they released it onto DVD. And I have to believe, there is one print run of the DVD. <laughs> they have put it on streaming, but anyway. So the final budget is somewhere between sixty-five to eighty-five million dollars. This voice yeah. cast is crazy. Yeah, Charlie Sheen. Be- Christopher well, Lloyd. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd is barely in the movie, but he Hillary is utterly. Duff. <laughs> yeah, and okay. So funny thing about Hillary Duff is that. When they were first making this movie, Hilary Duff was 14 years old. And the character she plays is Sunshine Goodness, which is a raisin mascot. And already Sunshine Goodness obviously had two different redesigns. Because in the movie, they show the box of her product. And she just looks like just some enthusiastic blonde human. And... And... You just know what happened was because she's the love interest of Dex Dog Detective, who's basically McGruff the crime dog, only for most of the movies wearing an Indiana Jones outfit. And for much of the movie, he's wearing the outfit that Rick from Casablanca wears. And there are so many Casablanca references in this movie where Dex opens a club called the Copa Banana. And it's just... (laughs) exactly like rick's club so so anyway they they realized they probably realized that isn't it kind of weird that this dog is trying to romance a human and another one probably just said hey why not just make her a cat girl and so that makes uh, it all the better yeah and in the original trailer she has a tail a cat tail And I can just tell you the meeting for why she doesn't in the final movie probably just came down to, you know, do we really want to animate a cat tail? And then. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And she's, she's easily the creepiest looking character in the movie. She's amazing. (laughs) Oh my God. So, uh, Oh, this is great. So I, I will say this first. I definitely want to have you on a second time because we've only done about half of the stuff that, that you and I talked about before this. This has been great. Um, we have been going on for over an hour, and I want to do some um, you know, housekeeping stuff for the show and play right, right quote, wrong movie. But I, I did want to 
end you on you telling me how you turned your mother into a fan of Mothra and Godzilla accidentally. Okay, so, I mean, the movie Godzilla King of the Monsters came out. And I just bought it today. I'm so excited. I loved yeah. it. And and just, so Mothra is a prominent character in that. And I just kind of got fascinated with just the concept of Mothra, such as, again, just from a production standpoint, how did they decide to just make a giant moth into a character? And I'm not going to say how they came to that decision. It's mostly it just came down to they were just creating all of the monster concepts and making cheap movies for all of them to see what sticks. Yep. So, so they, and I just figured, hey, I'll watch the original Mothra, the original 1961 movie. And and I got a the one DVD from the local library system, which is this four picture or creature feature thing where it's three movies nobody cares about and Mothra. <laughs> and I so I ultimately did not watch that one because they got a VHS transfer of it in four by three and it's a, a really terrible English dub. <laughs> Which, you know, is probably the better way to view the movie. But I didn't. I found the Japanese original. Anyway, I just loaned that DVD to my mom of just, hey, so you were a young kid when these movies came out. Maybe you'll get some nostalgia out of this. And also, Mothra's in it. And I had talked a bit about just Mothra as a character. And and just lent it to her. And she watched it. And even though... She will talk about just how not good on just the technical and and such scale that it is. She became a fan of the character. And one thing I'll have to send to you that you could include in just the show notes or whatever. She so something that she likes to do is she likes to make, for lack of a better term, she likes to make shrines to things, such as she nice. really likes the Lego movies. And so one thing she did was she got minifigs for her Emmett, for her Batman, Unikitty, Wild Style, and also, I mean, the Lloyd and Lloyd's dad from Ninjago. <laughs> and I named them... you. It's Lloyd. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, just one day. I just went into the basement to get something from the refrigerator down there. And I just noticed, oh, there are now a few pictures of Mothra on one of the shelves. Yes. <laughs> and and she... Initially, it was just Mothra by herself, but then Godzilla became a part of it. And, and now... And she also just found Im- fan art images, such as she found a couple that are fake matchbox things, just touristy matchboxes, but it's just Japan, home of the kaiju, and just in the background you see Godzilla and Mothra doing stuff. Oh, that's awesome. But, but anyway, I just and I was just wondering, wait, what is this? <laughs> And then I just talked with her about it. And she said that she just really likes the character. She got stickers and she they put them on her laptop of just Godzilla and Mothra. 
Oh, that's awesome, man. Has so one random image uh, that I found is just this drawing that someone did of just Godzilla, just kind of standing there chill while Mothra is just perched on his head. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she really loves that image, as in she had a coffee cup made with that image on it. And, and, and it was just a random thing that I discovered, and I just shared it on my Facebook page, and I just showed it to her again, and she just started talking about how much she liked the movies. But anyway, from there, she watched the original 1954 Godzilla. She watched Mothra versus Godzilla, where I got a random text where she said, Mothra is kicking Godzilla's ass. Your mom sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And she watched the 2014 Godzilla and the and recently King of the Monsters 2019. God, so so good. Yeah, I'm so good. Yeah, it brings to mind how uh, just one podcast I listened to that was just about monster movies talked about how you don't really have a whole lot of 20 somethings just saying, "Hey, so I watched Godzilla and I really like monster movies." And they say that you have to be just a young child that discovers them, and then you become a lifelong fan. Yep. Okay, this this proves it. She's sixty six years old and just suddenly became a huge fan of Mothra and Godzilla. It's so cool. That's so yeah. cool. Well, dude, th- thank you for that story, and thank you for all these stories, man. I, I really, really appreciate having you on. And like I said, I'd like to, I'd like to do this again because you've got. A ton to talk about. Um, real quick before we play right, quote, wrong movie. I uh, I made a boo-boo and didn't do my normal intro thing. So I'm just going to quickly thank my $15 or more a month patrons. Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., and you, Alex Peregrine, my, my guest today. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, do a quick ad read for the Geeks Who Haunt podcast. That is a offshoot of the Geeks with Shields podcast. Who you've heard me have them on before, and I've been on their show. Geeks Who Haunt is Slagathor, who is the wife of one of the um, heads of Geeks with Shields. She uh, runs a horror-themed podcast, and I've been on a couple episodes of that as well. So please check that out. Um, and with that, sir, are you ready to play right quote wrong movie? Yes, I am. And you know the rules? Yes, I do. Okay, for those that are listening to my show for the first time, it's played similar to Cards Against Humanity or Apples to Apples. Um, The black card or the phrase um, is a movie title that we draw, and my first movie title for this evening is King Kong. So a nice, widely known film. And both me and Alex have a hand of 10 cards with movie quotes that hopefully are not from that film. And if they are, you can't use them. Um, And the idea is to find out, uh, try to use a quote that's either funny or ironic or it'll just make the other guy laugh. So um, because you are the guest, I'll let you uh, be the first to go with a quote. So for King Kong, sir, what do you got? That's my mother you're pissing on. Oh, that's too good. Oh, man. I wish we had seen that in a King Kong movie. No, I yeah. really don't. <laughs> that That's really funny. Okay, let's see if I've, uh, let's see if I've got one. 
that's going to beat that. Uh, home. I have no home. Hunted, despised, living like an animal. The jungle is my home. Bride of the Monster. Yeah. I still think yours is better. Yeah, I mean, yours thematically is better, but... Yours is so mine, damn funny. Mine is more shock value to it. Oh, yours is perfect. All right, so round one goes to Alex. Round two is Donnie Darko. You ever seen that movie? Yes, I have. The, cool. Where the plane engine falls on the empty bedroom of Donnie, and he's involved in some time paradox. Yep. Okay. You're, you're welcome to go again as well. Sometimes dead is better. Nice. That's that's a good one. I've got just because of the time travel thing where we're going, we don't need roads. Donnie Darko. Nice. <laughs> I don't know. I think I I think I take that one. What about you? Yeah, you take that one. All right. And and I and I promise these are at free random that I'm pulling these. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> nice. How ironic is that? Yeah. All right. So, Go ahead. Okay. Because I imagine this is something that Ferris himself would say. In the quiet words of the Virgin Mary, come again. Come again? Yeah, perfect. I've got keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I think you take it. So, Alex, that means you are the winner, sir. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, do, you, do, you, do you enjoy that game? I think it's a blast. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's better. Than, well, I mean, I certainly like it more than Cards Against Humanity. Although, oh, that's awesome. That, thank you, dude. I appreciate that. Although, Cards Against Humanity, I just have kind of an awkward story where I went to my best friend's friend's wedding, and I went to the bachelor party. And there were a bunch of people I didn't know. And it turned out they were kind of just douche bros, really. They were talking uh, yes. about My most rate. favorite people on the planet. <laughs> we were at the... So it was a wedding in Florida. And we went to the Hard Rock Casino. Because we had our dinner at the Hard Rock... Uh, at the Hard Rock Cafe in the Hard Rock Casino, casino and Hotel. And... Less than half of the music videos on the TVs are what I would call hard rock. I mean, one of yep. them was Call Me Maybe came up. Yep. And it's just, yes, this is very much hard rock, isn't it? Where a song which I don't think even has a guitar in it. But, but anyway, hey, so we eventually went to, they had just some kind of cafeteria area. Also, this was around the time, this was the weekend that Batman v Superman came out, and there was some promotion for it where they even got some people dressed up as the characters to just do stuff. And and one of the characters, they had they had a Wonder Woman model and and one of the guys, because at this point we were just in this area, it was near a walkway where just people were coming and going and they would just interrupt the game of cards against humanity to just say, Hey, Hey, so what rating would you give that woman? And another one would just say, Oh, I give oh, her an eight. No, and that was terrible. But, 
But anyway, the game itself, I mean, with that, I mean, my best friend, he's he's not anything like that. And he even I ended up leaving a bit early and he even just said, yeah, I understand. <laughs> so. Um, with those as the people playing it, it it got uncomfortable. Yeah, right. That That's, you know, you, you got a bad group. It will ruin the game because I've played with people that, you know, there, there's something funny to be said about the, what the game makes you feel like, right? If you're playing with a bunch of people and you can, you can joke and laugh and point at how ridiculous the stuff on the cards are, but then you get people that like laugh and you realize that they're laughing because they're making fun of the thing that's written on the card, like making fun of a person. And it's like, that's not really the point of this game. The point of this game is for a bunch of people to go, Oh, isn't this, isn't this silly? And is it's not, it's not to hurt anybody. And so I've, I've always disliked when you play it with people that like, Oh, that said something negative about a woman, or that said something negative about a, you know, a black person or something. And that's what makes it funny. It's like, no, that that's, that's not, you don't, you don't get it. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most responsible players go through the deck and prune a lot of the cards, yeah. such as especially prune them, especially for the crowd. You know, we've you know we have a group of friends that are our favorite people in the world to play Cards Against Humanity with, or games like that, and they lost a child. And there's a ton of cards in there about that kind of stuff. That well, just... you so they just all go. You, you yeah. know what I mean? Like not even or like losing family members. Right. Me and my wife have both lost parents. So those those cards gone. You know what I mean? Not even it, it does. You know, it doesn't ruin the credibility of the game to take the the hurtful cards out. You yeah. know, the Academy Award for being on fire goes to a fetus. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, my, my favorite Cards Against Humanity card combination is an Oedipus complex. Kid tested, mother approved. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> but anyway, dude, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I am dead tired. I got up really early this morning. I teach uh, daddy boot camp at um, Beverly Hospital. It's like a um, for dads who's like are about to have kids like in two weeks, like forum for like a bunch of dads to get together and I talk to them about my experiences having kids and you know try to calm them down a little bit and give them some insight and I love doing it but I'm really dog tired now so um I really appreciate you being on and can't wait to have you on again and I'll leave you with the last word Alex if there's anything you want to tell the world yeah watch the movie food fight nice perfect dude all right I'm not because it's good but because it's amazing, <laughs> I, I can't wait to see it. I, I might, I might have to watch it this week and get back to you on it. And I guarantee, and, and I promise you that me and Bob will talk about it. I think he's already seen it, to tell you the truth. So now I just have to see it. Yeah, I mean, just well, I didn't get around to mentioning the weird thing about having Hillary Duff as the love interest. So she was in all versions of the movie, but the thing is. Charlie Sheen was in his late 30s or so when he initially recorded it, and Hillary Duff was 14 years old. Oh, no. But the movie oh. took to come out, so Hillary Duff was already of legal age when the movie finally whimpered this, into the theaters. The story just gets weirder and weirder. So, yeah, l- listen to Alex, everybody, and go watch Food Fight. I looked it up. I think Tubi and Voodoo have it for free, and you might be able to pay for it on YouTube. 
Um, but Alex, thank you again for shooting the shit with Chippa. And um, I hope you have a great night, dude.